Welcome back to the Critique Journal Club podcast series. I hope you had a great Christmas New Year break and you're ready for another monthly roundup of the intensive care literature. I'm Neil Orford and this is the January 2013 Journal Club podcast. So let's start with the Oscillate trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine this month. This multi-centre RCT conducted in 39 ICUs in five countries planned to randomise 1,200 patients with ARDS to early high-frequency oscillatory ventilation at 3 to 12 hertz and pressure amplitude of 90 centimetres versus control ventilation, which was a restrictive ventilation strategy, tidal volumes of 6 mils per kilo, high titrated PEEP and pressure plateaus of less than 35 centimetres of water. And the primary outcome was all-cause in-hospital death. The study was stopped at 548 patients due to a lack of efficacy and possible harm. The high-frequency ventilation group had a median of three days of HFOV and a mortality of 47%, while the conventional ventilation group 35% mortality. So that's a hazards ratio of 1.33 for death in the high frequency group with 95 confidence intervals 1.09 to 1.64 and a p-value of 0.005. The groups were well matched at baseline. Now they also report that high frequency ventilation was associated with more sedation and neuromuscular blockers more vasoactivations for a longer time, and a higher ICU mortality. There was a reduced incidence of refractory hypoxemia in the HFOV group, that's 7% versus 14%. And as an aside, it again appears that PaO2, or the presence or absence of hypoxemia, is not a good indicator of success of a ventilation strategy. The authors discussed the risk of adopting early stopping rules, that is, the risk of overestimating the magnitude of harm, and they point out their reasons, that is, they chose to terminate the study due to the increased mortality finding being consistent across all three consecutive interim analyses, the size of the effect of harm, and the need for vasoactive agents suggesting a mechanism of injury that is not offset by improved oxygenation with HFOV. Why is HOV harmful? Well, the authors postulate hemodynamic compromise due to higher airway pressures and increased barotrauma. So in summary, early HFOV and ARDS results in an increased mortality. Also in the New England Journal of Medicine, an RCT of restrictive versus liberal transfusion strategy in 921 patients with severe upper GI bleeding, stratified by cirrhosis, reported that the restrictive strategy, which was aiming for an HB of less than 70, compared to the liberal strategy, HB less than 90, was associated with an improved six-week survival, that's 95 versus 91%, Less transfusion, 49% versus 85%. And that the mortality benefit was more pronounced in patients with bleeding from cirrhosis than peptic ulcer, although the benefit was present in both. 
In addition, the restrictive strategy was associated with a lower portal pressure and a reduction in further bleeding. Now, these last two points support prior evidence suggesting a rebound increase in portal pressure following restitution of blood volume and therefore an increased risk of bleeding. A notable exclusion criteria included acute coronary syndrome, TIAs, lower GIT bleeding, exsanguinating bleeding, and a deemed low risk of re-bleeding. The groups were similar at baseline. So in summary, this study suggests a restrictive transfusion strategy should be applied to patients with severe upper GI bleeding. Current international guidelines recommend decreasing the haemoglobin threshold level for transfusion in patients with GI bleeding from 10 to 7 grams per deciliter. In JAMA, the CRICS group, which is the Clinical Research in Intensive Care and Sepsis group, published the effect of not monitoring residual gastric volume on risk of VAP in adults receiving mechanical ventilation and early enteral feeding. So this is more grist for the nutritional mill. In 449 mechanically ventilated adult patients receiving early enteral nutrition, defined as within 36 hours of institution of mechanical ventilation, who were randomised to gastric residual volume monitoring, 250 ml residual was considered the cutoff, versus no GRV monitoring. And this group feeding was only intervened on when there was regurgitation and vomiting witnessed. So there was no difference in the rate of VAP between the two groups. Now, in the GRV group, there was more vomiting and they had more prokinetic use, although more of the no GRV group met the definition of intolerance. The caloric target was achieved in a high proportion of the GRV group. So this non-inferiority trial challenges the idea that we should measure and react to GRV and suggests that it is equally safe to react only to witnessed intolerance, that is, regurgitation or vomiting. Now, it may be possible that this is the wrong GRV, that is, 250 mil residual volume is too high and that a lower GRV, 150 mils, for instance, may be associated with a lower risk of VAP, but this hasn't been proven and that is not tested by this trial. Also in JAMA, a nationwide prospective study of 650,000 consecutive out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients based in Japan reports decreased odds of neurological favourable survival when pre-hospital advanced airway management occurred, compared to conventional bag mask ventilation. Now, the rates of neurologically favourable survival were 1%. In the endotracheal group, 1.1% in the supraglottic airway group and 2.9% in the bag mask group. They tried to overcome the possible and obvious differences between groups, that is, that sicker patients get intubated therefore are associated with the worse outcome through multi-logistic regression and propensity matching. 
the association with airway management and neurological outcome persisted after adjusting for factors such as return of spontaneous circulation, etiology of the cardiac arrest, initial rhythm and witness status. Still in JAMA, the effects of intravenous paracetamol on post-operative morphine requirements in neonates and infants undergoing major non-cardiac surgery, a randomised controlled trial was published. This RCT, conducted in 74 infants requiring major thoracic or abdominal surgery, compared IV paracetamol to IV morphine as the primary analgesic agent with rescue morphine supplied for both arms. They found the paracetamol group received less morphine, median of 121 mics per kilo, versus 357 mics per kilo in the first 48 hours, and there was no difference in the morphine rescue between groups or adverse events. The authors conclude that paracetamol may have an opioid-sparing action in this population. The final JAMA study for the month is the effect of pressure support versus unassisted breathing through a tracheostomy collar on weaning duration in patients requiring prolonged mechanical ventilation. So this study randomised patients referred to a single long-term acute care hospital for weaning from prolonged mechanical ventilation, which was defined as greater than 21 days. They were randomised to weaning using pressure support ventilation or a tracheostomy collar. They found that the tracheostomy collar group had a shorter wean duration, 15 versus 19 days, but there was no difference in 6 and 12 month survival. The difference was observed in the group with late failure versus early failure in the method of weaning. So to understand this, and perhaps to apply it to our own practice, we need to know what they actually did. So patients were tested initially with a five-day unassisted breathing trial. If they got through this without respiratory distress, they were not randomised. That is, they were considered to be separated from ventilation. If they developed respiratory distress, they were entered in the trial. So the tracheostomy collar group received a maximum of 12 hours of tracheostomy collar breathing on day one and assist control ventilation for the remainder of the day. This was repeated on day two and then the five-day challenge occurred. The pressure support group were assessed for ability to decrease support three times a day and their pressure support was weaned down. If they could tolerate less than six centimetres of water for at least 12 hours, they were then entered back into the five-day trial. So what do you make of this? Because from my perspective, there is such varied practice with weaning that unless you do it their particular way, it is hard to know how to apply this knowledge that they've given us. Perhaps what it shows in its simplest form is that if we challenge patients more aggressively, we will wean some of them faster. In critical care medicine, the China Critical Care Clinical Trials Group has published a prospective observational study, which is the first of its kind, to describe the characteristics of ICU care in mainland China as well as providing insight into changes in healthcare since the adoption of the reform and opening up policy on 1978. 
If you are interested in the delivery of critical care in other nations, particularly in this economic and population powerhouse that is changing, this paper is of interest. We learn that universal free basic health care disappeared and that by 2010, health consumed 257 billion US dollars, or 5.15% of GDP, with 37.5% of that funded by individuals. The disparity between urban and rural health care expenditure has increased. After involvement in the SAFE and EPIC-2 trials, in the China Critical Care Clinical Trials Group was formed in 2009. The 22 ICUs that formed this group admitted 3,063 patients in two months and described the characteristics of these patients in 1,300 adults with a length of stay greater than 24 hours. In 60%, infection was the reason for admission, with pneumonia the most common. ALI-ARDS was present in 27%. Acute kidney injury developed in 31% and had a 42% mortality. Now, that's pretty high compared to 24% in Australia. And the ICU mortality was 16.3% with a length of stay of five days. The authors compare the characteristics of this population to European ICUs and note higher safer scores, ventilation rates and continuous renal replacement therapy rates than the Chinese population. So what it really provides is a baseline of data and information about critically ill patients in mainland China, which also provides some background for collaborative research. Also in critical care medicine... The latest international guidelines for the management of severe sepsis and septic shock have been published. So these 2013 guidelines represent the third edition of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign's international guidelines. It's worth having a look and familiarising yourself with them. And finally, in critical care medicine, surgeons expect patients to buy into post-operative life support Preoperatively, results of a national survey. So, conflict with surgeons over withdrawal of life sustaining treatment is an area of conflict in critical care medicine, which we are all used to. This can be described as a surgical do everything possible to save the patient approach. The authors have previously conducted qualitative research that indicates an additional factor, which is a surgical contract, occurs as a result of the preoperative surgical patient discussion, where patients agree to the use of burdensome treatment if complications occur. The authors pose the question, imagine that one of your patients requires non-emergent surgery and is at moderate risk for long-term postoperative ventilatory support or dialysis. If this patient had a specific request to limit life-sustaining therapy postoperatively, such as ventilatory support or dialysis, how often, if ever, would you, and then there are multiple options, including decline to operate, negotiate a time period before withdrawal could be considered, create an informal contract, etc. 912 of 2,000 cardiac, vascular or neurosurgeons replied to a questionnaire. What did they report? 1. Withdrawing life-supporting treatment at the patient's or surrogate's request was agreed to by 6% of surgeons on day 1, 50% by day 7, 85% by day 14. 
Now, this can be interpreted two ways. One, surgeons are able to withdraw eventually, that's great. Or two, over 50% are unable to respect autonomy for at least a week. The second point is that 60% of surgeons would refuse to operate if patients had a specific request to limit life-sustaining therapy preoperatively. And 72% would negotiate a time period after which this could occur. So this seems to support the previous point that many or most surgeons aren't prepared to accept early withdrawal, even if the patient or their surrogates want it. And the final point is surgeons who are prepared to withdraw postoperatively are more likely to form an informal contract with the patient preoperatively about this and are more likely to perform more high-risk operations. So that is, there are a proportion of surgeons who are not prepared to withdraw life-sustaining therapies postoperatively or discuss it preoperatively. Food for thought. Well, that's it for January 2013 Journal Club. Come to the Critique Journal Club website to have a look at the abstracts and the comments or read the articles in full yourself. See you next month.